don't think about what you want, you know, because everybody wants to lose weight and make more money, right? So we all want things that we actually don't achieve. Um, they've reframed it in like, well, how much pain are you willing to bear? You know, for those things you want in life, how much pain will you put up with? The Six Beers Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. Uh, me and Nick had a really fun time interviewing Mark LaPlante this week. He is super well-known at UW-Madison and honestly just gave some of the best advice I've had in a while. Uh, Nick, what do you think about it? I thought we had a great conversation with Mark. Um, he's an individual who clearly has a really high pain tolerance. Um, and I thought he shared a lot of great wisdom. So this is our episode for this week. Uh, to note, there are some audio problems at the beginning, but I don't get the tracks away from the conversation we had. And enjoy the episode. The Six Beers Podcast, presented by Nick Bauman and Ashlyn Galbraith. Uh, do you have your, your beers ready? I do. I, right, I right have here. my beer. It's 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 unopened right now. Yeah. So I you, think so um, you want to you want to tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. So um, this beer was introduced to me by my good friend Mark Harrison. He's the Wisconsin rep for War Pigs. So this is War Pigs Foggy Geezer Hazy IPA, and uh, it's delicious if you haven't had it before. And it's got an ABV about six point eight. So you should pace yourself a little bit. Gotcha. On it. Yeah, we'll be, we'll be careful. Yeah. Uh, I have yeah, a so it, it's a joint venture between a uh, brewery in Indiana and in Amsterdam. Oh. So some crazy brewmasters got together and wanted to try and make some new beers, and this is the product. Yeah. Did you take a sip? The are delicious. I did take a sip. Yeah, it's, it's pretty heavy, but that's, that's how we're going for tonight. Well, that's really good. There you go. Pretty fruity, pretty nice. flavorful. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the first thing I kind of wanted to jump into uh, from our phone call a few days ago, um, I think is interesting, is that you dropped out of college two years, two years in for like six or seven years. You said you were kind of bouncing around. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what was and we talked about? What was like the first thing you did when you dropped out? <laughs> um. Nothing I'm terribly proud of. Uh, you know, uh, Ashlyn just had my class and she saw all the bell backgrounds. You know, I bounced around for a long time. Uh, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And I, if you don't know what you want to do, you don't know how to get there. So it took me a long time to figure that out. And I held a wide range of jobs over that interval of time. And um, that was a really painful time, but it was really productive too. It allowed me to uh, think really long and hard about what I wanted to do and how to get there. Yeah, I feel like most college students kind of having like the stability of being in college, you feel like you're doing something that's putting you on the right path. Um, it'd be scary to, to drop out. Um, did you feel that at all? Like, was that part of the decision? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it was terrifying. and. Um, it was more terrifying not knowing what to do exactly. Uh, and uh, actually one of the best jobs I had of all those on the bald background list was actually being a Domino's pizza delivery guy mm -hmm. because I actually got to be paid to drive around at night and deliver pizzas and think of, think, just sit there and think and listen to music and think about what I want to do. It was a great job in that respect. Didn't pay much, but it was excellent uh, thinking time. Yeah. And it seems like taking that time off was a really big, important step for getting you to where you are now. But at the time, your friends and family were probably a little bit confused about your decision. So did you have any pushback or were they pretty supportive at the time? Um, my family has always been tremendously supportive. Uh, part of the reason I dropped out was because my parents got divorced and it turned into kind of a mess. And that uh, kind of derailed me. My parents, in particular, my father was very influential in trying to establish career goals for me. 
And so when the marriage fell apart, uh, it was time for me to think about more what I wanted to do rather than what my dad wanted me to do. And uh, it actually took me a good long time to disentangle those two, that uh, trying to think about what did I want to do going forward that I would find fulfilling that was separate and distinct from what I thought my father's expectations were. And that was a fairly painful and lengthy process to disentangle those two, but ultimately completely fruitful. You know, it's, it, it was the right thing at the right time. And you said you went to college um, with the intentions to be pre-med, right? I did. I started off at the University of Massachusetts as pre-med, and I spent some time there before dropping out, and then I bounced around. I actually took some classes in there, too. I actually started to take some business classes and some econ classes on the side uh, as I was working and got an interest in there. And uh, yeah, the, 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 I guess one of the pivotal moments was when my best friend's father offered me a job at his very good for a regional business firm, uh, industrial supply and uh, company. And I started working for, for him. And that really, that could be a way of, from all the pizza jobs and menial jobs. And uh, I worked hard and learned a lot. And uh, that was a great lesson in life for me because this man, his name was Bob, well, is Bob Prefontaine. Uh, he's the most successful business person I've ever met in my entire life. And uh, he never went to college. He, he enrolled in the Air Force after high school. He wanted to be a pilot. It turned out he was colorblind. So he actually, I think it was a mechanic for his, uh, his <laughs> tour. And then he went home and worked for his dad and then ultimately bought out his dad, set up his dad, and then expanded his business tremendously in the New England area. And here's a guy who is just sharp, you know, just naturally gifted. And the thing that I took away from my experience with Bob, and I saw it time and time again, was, you know, I know in Finance 300, I talk a lot about value maximization as the end-all be-all. Mm -hmm. But um, Bob did that. He created a lot of value for himself. Uh, but he did it by treating his employees like they were family. You know, so he really was involved with his employees. He was very supportive. Um, he was just a tremendous business role model for me, uh, and, you know, look, he didn't go to high school and I dropped out of college. And so he was kind of the perfect guy for me to run into um, at, the, at the perfect time. Oh, definitely. Would you say that he was probably one of the best mentors you've had? It depends on the domain, right? So in like corporate domain, yes. Uh, but I've had some tremendous personal mentors in my personal life. I've had I've been really fortunate to have some incredibly close friends the kinds of friends you can share absolutely anything with, even if they disagree with you, which is uh, is such a luxury in life. To get one of those is fantastic. To have a handful is just a, a, a wonderful surplus. I've been uh, very fortunate to have some amazing teachers who took an interest in me, uh, at, especially at the University of Washington. I'm actually, I'm wearing my alumni colors to <laughs> shout out the University of Washington where really good things happened to me, but I had some in incredibly good and incredibly bad professors along the way. And uh, the, the good professors really uh, were tremendously influential and I'm very grateful for them as well. Uh, do you feel like there are any, as you talked about your mentors, um, what were some moments you feel like where you might've been going the wrong way where you had somebody kind of pull you right back on track or maybe push you in the right direction when you, when you weren't? Uh, that's that's a funny question. As you're saying that, that's not th something we talked about earlier. But what um, what comes to mind was, you know, my undergraduate degree was in economics with a minor in mathematics, and so I wasn't in the business school. So at the University of Washington, uh, the econ departments in arts and sciences, and so I was separate from the business school. <clears throat> and uh, I got to know a lot of the econ professors and. It, I was pretty intent on getting my PhD at that point. So I started asking the professors for advice about getting a PhD and I won't name names here, but I had, um, I had one econ professor who really in retrospect, really viewed the business school as like selling your soul. Right. So, cause I was torn between finance and econ and, uh, 
and I just did some basic background and, you know, it was, it was harder to get into the, uh, I'm sorry, into the finance program. But once you got in, if you could make it, uh, it was easier to get a job. It was a higher starting salary. There was just a lot of pluses. So I went to this econ professor and I said, um, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about econ, I'm thinking about finance and here's the things. And I, and I said to him, I, I'll never forget this. I said, you know, and I really feel like if I go with finance, I'm going to do what I want, but I'll be more marketable when I actually graduate and get my PhD. And he said to me with this incredibly snarky tone, he said, well, have you ever got, considered just getting your PhD in marketing if that's what you're concerned about? And I laughed because <laughs> I thought, holy cow, right? Here's this guy in econ who should be sensitive to opportunity costs, right? Yeah. And he's just blowing them off in terms of my career, right? Yeah. To go to econ is to forego a, a job with uh, a higher probability of a higher starting salary and all of it. That just struck me as this shocking moment where an economist just ignored opportunity costs and it, it actually settled it for me. Like at that moment, I go, well, I, I guess, I guess finance is for me. So yeah, because you were ready to, to, to defend it. It also sounds like maybe he had some regrets about not maybe going towards the finance route if he's trying to. <laughs> I don't know. You know, again, even as I'm bringing him up in maybe a not so flattering anecdote, I, you know, and I would mention this to all students that, you know, again, I'm not going to name names, but he was incredibly generous with his time. You know, I was the kind of student who uh, really enjoyed just talking the stuff through in office hours. So mm -hmm. I would go to office hours and I would ask about stuff in class, but I would ask about extensions or things that bothered me or I thought were limitations. And that professor who gave me that advice, I would go to office hours once or twice a week. He would welcome me in. We would chat for an hour or so a week. So even though I'm not painting him in a very great light with the story, he was tremendous, you know, and uh, I've had a number of professors who've been generous with their time above and beyond, above and beyond the call of duty. Uh, and I'm, again, I'm very grateful for them. Uh, really tremendous con con uh, contributions mm. to me. Yeah. Uh, something I want to talk about too, or ask you, um, you seem really passionate about teaching finance, which uh, <laughs> I, think, I don't think many people in mean, finance can be kind of a dry science, could be completely wrong. And I, I bet you don't feel that way at all. But what is it about finance that you just really enjoy teaching? Well, you know, it's, it, it's funny because the first time I took a class, it, it wasn't exactly like Finance 300, but it was, it was kind of mathematics for business. Mm -hmm. And uh, I liked math. So I was taking this class and there were a lot of discounted cash flow equations and stuff like that. Right. So I, I really liked it. And so my first exposure to it was really from just the equation side of things. Um, but as time has gone on, I've both through my academic work and my reading outside of academia, I really realized how valuable business is to our own society and civilization. And over time, it's become a sore spot for me because I see the value that's created by my students and by business for our society. And oftentimes I look at the popular press and it treats uh, my students and my discipline like uh, we're analogous to drug dealers uh, in the social hierarchy of things. And I think it's just wrong on any number of levels. And that you know, there's no other way to put it. Um, I'm willing to fight for things that I think are right. And in this domain, I think, you know, my students, and, and, and when I say my students, I mean, I teach largely finance 300. So I'm talking about all business students, not just finance majors here, mm -hmm. that they have incredibly important contributions to make to our society through their careers and through their lives outside of their careers. And uh, yeah, so uh, that fires me up a lot. And uh, I, I really value my students' time. Um, as I was talking with Nick about experiences that have informed my teaching, 
I think back on the many classes I've taken and I think of all the terrible teachers I had and how much I don't want to be like those teachers. And the number one kiss of death for me as a student was to have a teacher who was indifferent to me as an individual, that mm -hmm. they just didn't care. You know, there are any number of professors I had who walked into the classroom and you definitely felt like they were punching the clock and their hour and 15 was up and that was it. And they didn't care whether you moved up or moved down or sideways or what have you. And so those experiences have motivated me to make sure that um, when I have students in the classroom, by definition, they're saying this is the, ha the highest valued use of their time. And that fires me up to make sure we get the maximum bang for the buck when we're together. So that's a really kind of economics informed way to say that, which is, which is funny. Um, it, it is, but I, there's something else I've learned about those indifferent teachers. Huh? Uh, and it's an important point, And that is they would come in and they would treat the topic like it's in, like, so what? Like everybody knows this stuff. There, there was no excitement. It, it was always such a terrible signal to me because I would say as a student, if this is their discipline and this is the thing that they're making a career of and they have no enthusiasm, why am I as a student supposed to have enthusiasm for somebody who's pursuing this and has no enthusiasm? Mm -hmm. It always just struck me as this disconnect, you know? So I think, um, I think one of the biggest components of leadership is to lead by example. Mm -hmm. And if I don't have enthusiasm, genuine enthusiasm for what I'm doing, then I don't belong in the room. Kind of end of story. Mm -hmm. And if I have passion, uh, even if I might not be the easiest teacher, as long as students know I'm trying to do what I'm doing for their best interest, by and large, students get on board and they're responsive and they get excited too. And um, it's been a great win-win over the years. Definitely. Um, I think a lot of your students pick up on that. Um, and it's Finance 300 is definitely known as a class that you can't mess around with. You have to put in the work to do well in it. Um, and I'm is not- that because of the, the five pages of notes at the end of my syllabus from four students <laughs> that talk about- That might be the first hint, definitely. <laughs> and I'm not sure if you've ever looked at Rate My Professor, but I it's- try not to, actually. Try not to. <laughs> I have one that's, I have a good one. It's the most liked comment for you. And it says the plan is the man. If you actually want to learn something, then take this class. He is strict and his tests are hard, but he makes sure that you see how to apply the material in real life. If you're offended by LaPlante, then you're in for a wild ride after graduation. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was kind of fun. <laughs> and also wanted to ask you as a follow-up if that is intentional, um, making the class serious and hard so that people do learn that work and know what to expect from the finance world. Uh, yeah, so when I was a doctoral student, uh, I had to take a, initially a class on teaching students um, believe it or not, you can get your PhD and go off and teach students without ever having taken a class on how to teach. But we had to do that at the University of Washington, and we had guest speakers. And um, I did learn some nuggets that really resonated with me in that, in that program. And one was to set clear expectations that students will respond, even if you set high expectations, as long as they know where they're going, why they're going there, and how to get there, they will respond positively. And I've, I've really taken that to heart. And I think, at least in business, it, it's pretty clear what the payoffs are. I mean, we have a luxury that many disciplines don't have at the University of Wisconsin, where we have very high hiring rates. We have very high median salary salaries. We have tremendous uh, career trajectories. And that's not saying that doesn't happen elsewhere on campus, but you know, we have a lower variance, I think, than elsewhere on campus. And um, let's face the facts. Uh, you all, whatever your discipline in the Wisconsin School of Business is, you're going to go out and you're going to have jobs of responsibility where there's a lot of money at stake. I don't care what you're in, management, marketing, real estate, you have a lot of other people's money at stake. And you really need to know something. You have a fiduciary obligation to go out and create value for those people. And you got to know what you're doing. 
And I bring that into class because those are the things that are going to make my students successful down the road, actually knowing some stuff, not taking a test, not getting an A, not getting rubber stamped, but being able to do some stuff is what's going to be the most important thing of all. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's, that's super valuable. Um, something I kind of want everybody else to, uh, to hear about uh, that we talked about a few days ago was, uh, so this is when you were trying to get into the PhD program at Washington and you had to take a finance course uh, to get a letter of recommendation, right? Yeah. yeah. Might you mind telling that story again? I think that, I think that's sure. a, that says a lot. And I, I don't know if you re- I don't know if you realize that, but <laughs> that's pretty, it's pretty different. No. So, you know, I, as I was going through school, I realized I wanted to get my PhD. I also recognized that that was going to be a daunting challenge. It's very difficult to get admitted into a, a good program. Uh, I felt like I had the grades. Uh, I didn't know how I would do on the uh, the standardized test. In my case, it would be the, excuse me, the GMAT. And you also need letters of recommendation. Uh, at that time, as I told Nick the other day, I was thinking I was going to get my BA in economics and a BS in statistics. So I was going to graduate with two degrees. And my plan was to go to Cal Berkeley to get my PhD. I had become interested in maybe getting my PhD at Washington, and uh, I wanted to hedge my bets. So um, I decided a backdoor route to increasing my probability of being accepted there was I would take a class in the finance department, which I had not previously done, and I would go into that class, and I would make that class my number one priority, and I would destroy it. Like, I would go in there and just annihilate that class and separate myself from everybody in the class, no matter what it took. And uh, it was a, it was a, actually a class in um, central banking. And uh, that's what I did. I, I, I went in there and I put my nose to the grindstone and I hustled and busted my butt. And I had the highest grade in the car class by far. And then I turned around and said to that faculty member, hey, would you write a letter for me to get into your program? And um, he was actually kind of uncomfortable with doing that. He, he told me pretty clearly that he, would, he, he typically would not do that. But I, I figured it would be an ace in the hole to get somebody on, the, on their own faculty saying, this is a guy we want in our own program. Mm. And so I think it gave me a lot of... I don't know because I wasn't on the admissions committee, but um, I, I think it gave me some leverage I wouldn't have otherwise had. And that's a and I was accepted, so that was good. Exactly, because um, but that's a that's a pretty ambitious plan to just go out and, and execute. Um, I don't know if you if you recognize that, but are there any other kind of moments in your life where I don't know if you realize it's it's pretty ambitious to to do that, but. Um, yeah, I guess I'm trying to get at, are there any other times in your life where you've just set really ambitious goals like that and just done it? Well, I mean, as, as we discussed the other day, you know, I really wanted to get my PhD. I knew I had the grades, so that was one box to be checked. I knew I needed letters of recommendation. That's why I did that class in the finance department, so that was another box checked. And the last variable was going to be my GMAT. And um, as students probably know from my ball backgrounds, I put myself through school by working all kinds of bartending and, you know, medical experiment kind of jobs. And I just didn't have a lot of money is the long and short of it. And I knew I should take a prep class, but I just didn't have the money to take a prep class with the GMAT. So instead I took the funds that I had and I bought every single GMAT prep book that existed on planet earth and went through every single GMAT prep book on planet earth to prepare for the GMAT. And the week that I took the GMAT, I took one full exam every single day for seven days up till the exam. What did you do to celebrate after? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know. So, so that was the thing. I took the test. I felt pretty good about it. I knew I had to score somewhere North of 700 to have a fighting chance to be, to be uh, accepted to a doctoral program. And when I got the envelope, because at that time it was snail mail, um, I opened it up and I was north of 700 and I said, I'm, I'm going somewhere. I don't know where it's going to be, but I, I'm in somewhere. So that was a, it was a huge moment. Um, it was checking the last of the three big boxes and I, I, I knew it was going to happen. Yeah. So yeah, there was celebrating to be had. <laughs> oh, definitely. That's pretty it wild. sounds like um, at least at that period in your life, uh, you were pretty busy with focusing on 
school and reaching these goals, um, even if you didn't know exactly what those goals were yet. But when you're not doing all of that, what do you do hobby-wise? Back then, nothing. I mean, my life, (laughs) no, it's true. It was a a time in my life where, um, and and many students will face this, and you have to come down on it. What is it you want? And what is it, you know, what is it you're willing to put up with? I actually listened to a book, you know, I listened to a lot of audio books to fit in. And, you know, it was an interesting book because it, it framed things as like, don't think about what you want, you know, because everybody wants to lose weight and make more money, right? So we all want things that we actually don't achieve. Um, they've reframed it in like, well, how much pain are you willing to bear? You know, for those things you want in life, how much pain will you put up with? In fact, pain, you know, no pain, no gain goes back to Benjamin Franklin, who actually got that phrase going. And there are times in life where the big constraint is time. You know, as economists, we know scarcity is a big deal. And time is probably the most scarce resource. And time can force you to choose your priorities. And at that point in my life, my priority was to get my degrees and get to the next step. And that meant lots of things had to be set aside, time with friends, time with family, uh, all kinds of things, very painful things went by the wayside in order to take those steps. And um, yeah, you got to really sort out what you want and how you're going to get there and uh, what the cost will be. And sometimes they can be substantial. Uh, you know, my wife and I have pursued this, this career and it's been enormously gratifying in so many ways, but there've been tremendous costs along the way. You know, if you want to be a faculty member, it means you're really saying, I'm willing to enter a global labor market and move wherever the jobs are. And for me, that's meant going from Massachusetts to Seattle, to Texas, to Georgia, to Wisconsin. And every time I've moved, I've lost friends. And when my wife and I started a family, there was no family support. So to be a working couple with two small children with no aunties and uncles and grandmas and grandpas around, it can be an enormous challenge for a family. And uh, again, you have to decide what what are your priorities and uh, making sure that you're putting your energy, the most of your energy into the highest of your priorities and working your way down. Um, you see, so you talked about kind of that stretch where you dropped out as a really painful time. Sure. Do you feel like <laughs> enduring, enduring that at a relatively young age has kind of, you know, made your pain tolerance and be able to like set priorities and, and give up things? Does that kind of, does that change things for you in a way? Uh, I, I mean, you, you certainly don't want to go that through that phase when you have family, right? So, right. um, if you were going to pick the optimal time to pick it, that was the time to pick it. Um, you know, uh, it was a, there's no other way to put it. It was just a very tough time. There was a lot of soul searching and I had a very hard time figuring out, I mean, let's just be put our cards on the table. Um, when I was raised, my dad only thought that there were three acceptable careers, uh, law, architecture, or uh, medicine. That was it. Anything else was just like out of bounds. So um, it was an adjustment for me to kind of separate myself from that view and really stop and think for, for the first time in my life as a twenty early 20-year-old, like, okay, well, what do I want here? And um you know, stop thinking about what my family wants and think about what I want. And it was surprisingly long time for me to sort that out. Um, and it, and the other reality is, uh, I'm not proud to say it, but it's the truth. I was extraordinarily immature and lacked independence. Um, you know, I just wasn't ready for prime time is there's no other way to put it. And, uh, working menial jobs reminds you that you're not ready for prime time. Uh, and so that was all very sobering. Um, but when I look where I'm at, uh, it, it's hard to second guess things. Uh, life has turned out so tremendously well, you know, um, playing the coulda, woulda, shoulda game is a fool's errand. 
you just never know what would have happened. And uh, I look at my life now and it's fantastic. I mean, I, it's the best. And uh, I wouldn't have gotten here with all, without all of that. So I'm, you know, you have to be grateful for the good things in life, but you also have to be grateful for the bad things in life too. Uh, and sometimes that's hard to do, but you know, it, it can pay off. I, I don't know if anybody here is familiar with stoicism. Are you familiar with the yeah. ancient philosophy of general, stoicism? General concepts, but yeah, definitely, definitely go into it. it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not as familiar. So, so I, you know, it's not like I'm getting paid royalties for this book, but there's a tremendous book out there that I think I, when I was in my difficult times, would have benefited from tremendously. And I think a lot of people in your similar age group and situation would benefit from tremendously too. And it's a book called The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. And it's about how to face life and take real responsibility for what happens in your life without blaming anybody or anything and accepting whatever cards fate deals you. And not only just making the best of those cards, but to play those cards with a really good attitude, not only whatever those cards are to accept them, but to love them. And there's a stoic saying in Latin, which is amore fate, which means to love your fate. And if you can do that, uh, you'll find life a lot more rewarding, both the upsides and the downsides. Yeah. And to kind of touch back on what you said about not looking back um, about what could have been, I, as a young person, doesn't really have much experience at all with um, the job market I'll be faced with upon graduation, struggle with a lot of indecision about where I want to go after college. And what was that like for you when you were figuring out, you know, if you wanted to do finance or maybe you were looking at other job markets before that or what it may be? I'm in real estate myself and, you know, I'm always bouncing back between if I want to do development, private equity, any of those things. And I know that I can kind of be flexible once I enter the job market, but it is one of those hard and confusing times for college students. So do you have any advice for that or what was your experience like? Uh I will share, you know, a, a caveat here, right? So there's a famous saying, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it goes something like, unsolicited advice is typically worth the price you pay for it. So I'm going to give you unsolicited advice um, and you can disregard it as you like. But there's an author whose work I like, his... Uh, he his his last name's Taleb, and he wrote a book called um, "Anti Fragile." And uh, in actually, I hope I'm not mixing my books here. But he has in his this book, I believe, because I read half a dozen of his books. Um, there's this strategy about how to um, come out ahead in the game of life. Okay, so. Bear with me for a minute. We'll, we'll think about your real estate career here in just a second. And that is, okay, imagine life is a string of uncorrelated uh, coin tosses, 50% heads and 50% tails, okay? And it's going to happen. Life is filled with good luck, bad luck. In fact, that is one of my axioms that I've learned is um, you can't foresee the future and there are going to be opportunities that present themselves that you never imagined. And the question is, will you be ready to accept those offers, you know, take those challenges that you never even conceived of? Now, what Taleb would say is say, okay, uh, if, if think about asymmetric payoffs, let's say the upside's really big, but the downside's pretty limited, okay? Now, if I to toss a fair coin over and over again, and the losers are not so bad, but the winners are pretty big, how are you going to come out in life on average? Pretty good. Pretty good, right? So he's like, put yourself in situations where you have asymmetric payoffs, where the upside's really big and the downside is pretty small. And since you can't control luck, 
you play the odds and you will come out ahead. So it's about navigating yourself and your career to create, you know, Taleb doesn't say it, but what he's really talking about is trying to put call options into your life. He doesn't use that vocabulary, but that's what he's doing. Um, and, uh, but it's really useful because there's lots of things that have limited downside and lots of upside. For example, uh, exposing yourself to new books. Downside is limited in the time that you spend, but you have no idea what the upside will be in terms of it transforming the way you view the world. So like Taleb, I think would recommend read lots of books, okay? Or when it comes to a job, you know, one of the key issues when you're in the workforce is being just exposed to different people because if you're exposed to more people, you increase the probability that you're going to hit it off with somebody in the career sense or have opportunities. So I think, for example, living in a big city is an asymmetric payoff. You know, you're in a very densely packed space with lots of different people with lots of different views and your downsides limited to your rent, but your upside is kind of, um, is kind of unlimited. And the same goes for jobs. Uh, if you're going to go take a job and you're not sure exactly what you want to do, uh, then it's probably a good hedge to go with a big firm where you have lots of opportunities to move laterally or discover things you wouldn't have discovered otherwise with limited downside. You know, if you work for a big firm, whatever it is, accounting, KPMG, or financial Goldman Sachs, you know, that big name recognition is going to give you option value as well. You know, people will look at your resume and they'll know where you've been. They don't do, have to do a lot of research. So that's in your favor too. Um, personally, outside of work, I find travel to be an asymmetric payoff, uh, going to different countries seems to me like there's a lot of upside in terms of learning and exposure and cultural thinking with very li limited downside. So if you can play these games in any set of dimensions in life, whether it's travel, reading, career, what, what have you, um, over time, if you play the game enough, you'll, you should come out ahead. Um, something I want to touch on. Um, so you talked about kind of your, your soul searching period um, where you're trying to figure things out. What was the, um, I don't know if there's a specific moment, but what was kind of the process of getting out of that? Or what kind of, what helped you kind of find out what you were trying to do? I, I don't know. It was a long, it was a long term, but, but, you know, um, there was a period of time where I felt like I had the raw ability Mm -hmm. uh, but I, if I look back and I'm objective, I didn't have the will. I didn't have the self-discipline. I didn't have the work ethic. And I think things finally started coming together for me when I said, okay, I've got the ability, but ability with effort doesn't get you anywhere. And I, and I really, it was that process of saying, okay, I need to make sacrifices. I need to focus on X, Y, and Z. I can't spend as much time with my family. I can't spend as much time with my friends. I have to accept poverty. And um, it was really moving from uh, relying too much on ability and not enough on effort to putting the effort part into the equation. Mm. And that made all the difference. And that was really the transformation for me. And um, it was in part by design. You know, when I moved from Massachusetts to Seattle, I was cutting off everybody I knew. You know, I was moving 3,000 miles away with no money to start a new life. And it was extraordinarily, extraordinarily liberating because nobody knows you. You can be anybody you want. Nobody has any expectations. You can rewrite your whole narrative. So that was incredibly motivating for me uh, to go to a new place with no expectations. And I could just do what I wanted to do. And uh, I could devote an enormous number of hours to it because I didn't have no friends, no family, nobody distracting, nothing. It was just putting in the hours and a lot of them. Was that, was that pretty terrifying? What was they, what, what did it feel like to, you know, it was, it was, out the way? it was, it was terrifying and uh, liberating. Um, it was, it was a super exciting time. I, I really loved the challenge of it. I was terrified of failing. Um, I was terrified about not knowing what was going to, what was going to happen. Uh, but I also recognized that there were no longer any excuses. Um, there was nobody holding me back. There was nobody, there were no constraints other than those that I imposed upon myself. 
I had all the time I needed in a week. Uh, it was a matter of, did I have the discipline and uh, the willingness to make sacrifices to get where I wanted to go? And, and those sacrifices had to be made, not just a, a week at a time, but for months on end. Uh, there were times where I even said to myself, like, this is crazy. This is just crazy. <laughs> I mean, up and moving that many times, because you listed a, a few amount of states that you've bounced around. Um, did you ever have like a, oh, I want to live in this state, ideally, or you wanted to live for a certain amount of period in Seattle or whatever it may be? Did you have some goals like that? Or was it always just kind of when the opportunity striked you? Took hold of it. I confess, uh, I, you know, I, I told Nick this, and this is part of the video you might want to edit out, but I was looking <laughs> at schools and I was interested in, you know, Seattle, Virginia, uh, well, University of Washington, University of Virginia, and University of Minnesota. I actually went to University of Washington first to check it out. And I actually flew over Minnesota to, <laughs> to get to uh, Seattle. I ruled it right out from 33,000 feet. I'm like, I am not living there. So... <laughs> I think right off the list. I think that definitely stays in. First oh, of all, yeah. that definitely stays in. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's the truth. And I, I confess, I, when I get to Seattle, I fell in love with it between you know, Puget Sound and the mountains and all the outdoor activities. I mean, I immediately fell in love with it. Um, there was parts of me that wanted to stay, but the academic life is a, as I said, it's a global labor market. You go where the jobs are. And it just so happened that the job took me to Texas. And then uh, my wife, well, my wife and I wanted to start a family that required us to get a job in the same town. So we ended up in Athens, Georgia. Uh, but I learned a good lesson from my best friend. Uh, you know, I love Seattle. It's a great city. I loved all of it. And he he got his um, master's of fine arts and creative writing from the University of Arkansas. And he took a job at Eastern Illinois University in Charleston, Illinois, which, you know, some people in the Midwest probably know that school. And I remember him raving about Charleston, Illinois, like this is the best place to live. How fantastic it is. I'm like, wow, okay, I'm going to go visit you. And so I did, I went to Charleston, Illinois. And I remember flying in going, oh my God, it's an island in the corn. Like there's nothing but corn and soybeans around the whole place. And it's this tiny town with almost no restaurants. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is crazy talk. This is not a great town. This is not a great place to live. And yet I learned from him. He was totally right. Because... Um, the life he created there was built around close friendships and relationships. And those were able to give him a tremendously fulfilling life. And so that was an important lesson to me that it's not so much where you are as what you bring to the table with the relationships you're willing to form in those places. I mean, when you think about any one place, you don't typically don't think about the place itself. Although the Pacific Northwest has a lot to offer between the the Cascades and the Olympics, you tend to think about the experiences you had with people in those places. And my friend gave me a good lesson in uh, how much more important it is to have sound relationships than the particular place that you're living in. Mm. And I think when you're young, you know, I think, uh, and you're mobile in the sense of, you know, typical undergrads doesn't have two kids and a spouse and you know, you really want to take full advantage of them, that mobility and go wherever the opportunities are. And, you know, it's, it's true because we're human beings, right? I had a strong bias to stay near my friends and family in, in Massachusetts. My wife had the same kind of bias to stay near her family in Colorado. We all do. it. You know, when I was in Georgia, where do you want to work? I want to work in Atlanta. If I asked students in the office, I was, where do you want to work? I want to work in Chicago. Right? You tend to have this regional bias. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I have found that um, if you take the risk of putting yourself in the uncomfortable position where you don't know anybody and you let go of your safety net a little bit, you have the opportunity to grow a lot faster than you would have otherwise. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to. You, yeah. you, either, you either step up or you're in misery. And most people choose to step up and forge new relationships and and, and take the upside. 
definitely. I mean, that's how big cities are built in the first place. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's some that's some really good advice. Do you have any uh, any other kind of unsolicited advice for young people our age? Especially when it comes to um, building a strong personal finance. Um, yeah, because I think yeah. a lot of people they want to you know have a big retirement fund and all those things, and they say start investing young and. I think a lot of people aren't really sure the first steps to take in doing that. So if there's any unsolicited advice um, to kind of give to get that going, what would you say is like the most important thing? So Ashlyn, did you say, did you just have me online last semester? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So you You weren't very good. (laughs) Well, I learned, but not everyone on the listing will learn that. (laughs) So this, this is feedback right now. <laughs> so if we had been in person, you know, and as you go through Finance 300, it's pretty clear that many of the dual tools that we develop to be a good corporate manager are also dual use tools and are applicable to personal finance, even though Finance 300 is not a personal finance class. And so in the past, I had done a voluntary investing seminar to take the tools we learned in Finance 300 and meet, typically I reserve Granger 1100 because it's the biggest room in Granger at the end of the semester and we get together and I lay out kind of the, the initial plan for students to get going saving for their financial goals. Depends on the crowd and the, and the questions that I'm asked, but it usually runs 90 to 120 minutes. And then that's actually often followed by a prepared presentation I have, which is titled Unsolicited Advice for 20-somethings. So you missed out on this because it was all online. Bummer. Are you are you graduating or are you gonna be a? Um, I am graduating my like undergraduate this spring, but then next year I'm doing that MS in real estate. So I'll be in Madison another year. So you should uh, send me an email and come to my investing primer and presentation. I will welcome you. And we can cover a lot of ground uh, very good. quickly about good, good, good basic sound rules of getting going, saving and investing when you graduate. But you know what you said is true. Uh, it's a cliche, but uh, the sooner you start, the better, the more you can save, the better. Um, if you can bear risk, you'll be rewarded on average. And before you know it, you won't be worrying about big ticket items like retirement or whatnot. Uh, and Uh, it's actually very simple advice, but for those students who follow it, uh, they can be tremendously successful financially. uh, And it's truly impressive. I mean, I had a student come uh, to one of these investment firmers and he really took it to heart. And uh, he sent me an email like three or four years on and said, Hey, are you still doing that seminar? I'm like, yeah. He's like, can I come on down? I said, yeah, come on down. You know, we'll see how it's gone. And yeah. he comes in and he goes, hey, I just want to tell you, <laughs> I just want to tell you that I didn't come here to, to listen to the seminar. He's like, I wanted to come and tell you that I've only been out of school for, I forget what it was, three or four years. He was actually working for a local medicine firm. He goes, and I already have $250,000 safe for retirement. Wow. Okay. Like, well, I'm definitely wow. yeah. 24, 25 yeah. with quarter million dollars saved. Right. And so he is never going to worry about money in his retirement. Right. Wow. Never. Yeah. It's fantastic. This all comes back to it, the kind of the passion you have for teaching finance. So you get to see your work pay off essentially in other people. I do. It's enormously rewarding. I'd love to see my students be successful. It's the best thing in my career. Um, uh, You know, I don't know, Nick, if you want me to tell you the story that happened when I was in the SEC, but that was the biggest compliment I've got my entire career. And uh, it it, it resonates today because, again, students know I don't care about grades. I care about whether my students can go forward and be successful. I know now that I have former students who are in in that point in their careers where they're really in positions of substantial responsibility. You know, I have student former students who are CFOs. I have former students who have founded new companies. I have former students who are now CEOs. 
um, it's so rewarding to see them just get on the other side of graduation and do what they said they were going to do and be successful. It's, it's the best uh, reward of all. Uh, but when I was in Georgia, I got, I'll, I'll, I'll give the short version because we don't, don't want to drag it out. But I was contacted by a dean at another business school in the Southeast. And I was mystified. Like, why, why are you reaching out to me? Like, my own dean doesn't reach out to me. So why are you reaching out to me? And we had this funny conversation on the phone. He, 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 he says, you know, I'm sure you're wondering why we're even talking. I'm like, yeah, that's really what I'd like to know here. And it turns out he was a dean who also taught finance in the MBA program at this Southeast school. And he figured out through time that my former students from the University of Georgia were cleaning the, cleaning the floor with everybody in that program, that they would just come through and they would kick ass and wipe the floor with everybody. Wow. That and must have been the best feeling to hear that. That was the best compliment I've gotten my entire career. It was all about my students can get the job done, you know, and it was awesome. I'm so grateful for that conversation. And he said, you know, if I ever need a job, just give him a call because he would like to bring me in and turn those into his school students, not the University of Georgia students. But it was the, it was the, the biggest time in my career where I actually learned firsthand that my students were going out, competing at a high level, and were being successful, and that's what it's all about. Do you feel like some of your motivation as a teacher comes from kind of a competitive side? You, you want obviously you want your students to do better than other of course people. they do absolutely yeah. it's a competitive environment. If, it, it, if, so I you, did, if I didn't believe in competition, I wouldn't have competitively determined letter grades. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I am a firm believer that competition brings out the best in, mm-hmm. in performance. I, I really mean that. You know, that's why we watch sports, um, because you get to see people compete at a high level and you don't know the outcome. And that's what makes it exciting. And that's what makes business exciting. Um, you know, Nokia, you, you probably, I don't even know if you remember Nokia, but yeah, Nokia dominated yeah. the, the mobile phone market. Now they don't even really exist anymore. I mean, some of their patents might be owned by Microsoft. But the idea that when you're out in business, you are one of the most competitive playing fields in the world. And it's, it's not one person's career at stake. It's thousands of people's careers at stake. You know, when Enron failed, it wasn't one person who went under. It was an entire company and all their retirees and everything. So business is this incredibly competitive, high stakes environment where you really got to win or shut up. And if you don't win, there's not a lot of tears being cried for you by your competitors or anybody else. Uh, You know, you need to get it done or go home. Uh, and it's a great place to go out and create value. Uh, it's a great place to go out and show what you can do. And the nice thing is you are pretty directly rewarded when you can do those things that create value, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we're kind of nearing the end of our hour. Um, some we want to close with. So obviously you've done a lot with your life so far. Um, got to take advantage of your time. Um, but what do you want to do with you know, the rest of the time you've got here? Um, what, are, what, kind of, what are your, I don't want to say goals, but how do you want to spend your time going forward? I don't know. Um, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a difficult question. Uh, I, I love my job. I, I really love what I do. I can't even tell my students how much I miss the classroom. Uh, teaching online has been such a uh, difficult experience for me because I thrive on cold calling and that interaction with my students and seeing, you know, I love the big classroom where um, you can see a hundred faces are getting it or not getting it. You get the feedback instantaneously. Whereas in an online environment, I have no idea. The best I can do is watch discussion boards and whatnot. So for the moment, uh, I'm just squarely focused on trying to get back in the classroom, 
Uh, I'm trying to write a textbook that teaches finance the way I think it better taught. Mm-hmm. So that's a big priority for me this next year. Um, you know, I've gone back and forth on this, but I, I, I think I know where I've come down now. Uh, the reality is that the recruiting cycle has gotten sooner and sooner in business students' careers. So uh, it used to be that students were competing to get Wall Street internships for their juniors, but now they're competing to get uh, internships between the junior and, uh, I mean, their sophomore and junior years. So that's really pushed the, the content delivery cycle earlier, meaning uh, many of my students are going to take Finance 300 and we are actually adjusting the curriculum this year in the finance department to try and help them to be able to take another class to get them ready for the job market. But the job market is becoming so much sooner that I just don't feel like my students have enough tools to get out there and uh, compete effectively. So I've done it in the past. And I've gone back and forth a little bit on it. But I think going forward, when I get back in person, I'm going to go back to doing voluntary teaching on Fridays where I invite students to come down and just want to learn finance for finance sake and have some fun and learn some topics they wouldn't see otherwise until later in their academic careers and uh, give them that much more of a fighting chance of getting that uh, investment banking job with Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan or Citibank or Rothschild, whoever it is. And uh, for students who've participated in that in the past, it's been a lot of fun. The, the best part of that experience is when I show up on a Friday and it's you're not there to take tests, you're just there to learn. Uh, that's fun because, you know, nobody's there because they have to be there. Everybody's there because they want to be there. And that's that's a good time. So those are the things on my immediate horizon to get back to once we get back to some uh, post-vaccine uh, reality. Yeah. Oh, definitely. That all sounds great. Um... I'm not... Anything else? I don't think I have any other questions. We covered a lot. Um, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. We do really appreciate this. Yeah. Hope you had fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fun. Uh, it's been my great pleasure. Um, I miss my students. Uh, yeah. you know, part of my motivation for doing this is uh, I miss the classroom. I haven't seen students from what? Mid-semester spring 2000. it's awful it's it's kind of funny hearing you say that because I listened to hours of your voice (laughs) this past semester and it felt like I you know learned directly from you I mean the videos even though it was online and kind of a weird way to learn the material I still learned I got a lot out of it um so it's kind of funny because you miss the students but I definitely I mean, my roommate is even used to your voice at this point from just you're, playing you're, the You're very gracious for saying that. Uh, <laughs> it is funny because, you know, I, I originally, it's a long story, but anyways, I, I originally made my, vi- my lectures available because I have so many students that there are always students who miss lecture for good reasons. Um, and so I took those videos that I have, I have a few a couple of years of them. And then I edited out all the stuff that doesn't work, like cold calling doesn't work in online, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I actually listened to it. So if you listen to the lecture presentation material versus me just sitting there doing voiceover PowerPoint, like the lectures are way better, right? You yeah. Know, I'm, I'm engaged. It's, it's a different voice. It's a different energy. So yeah. some yeah. of that comes across. In the and I, I think having been a student, the, the cold calling is like a little bit terrifying. If you're not, <laughs> if you're not there, if you're not, if it's you're not ready for it. terrifying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it, it's, it. It, exactly. Yeah. No, it, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. There it, definitely were a few points in the PowerPoints um, where you'd call on like a student and then they'd kind of say, but you couldn't really hear it in the lecture and then you'd repeat it. So I could hear it on the PowerPoint, but I felt like I was there. I was like, <laughs> I wonder if Andy's going to get it right. <laughs> That's great. You know, it, it's great. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, hey, look, we're all making the best of a really terrible situation. Uh, mm-hmm. My students are in a bad situation. I hate being out of the classroom. And yet um, we still have to live our lives and try to make our careers and uh, work as hard as we possibly can to get the job done. And it's very gratifying to see my students doing just that at the University of Wisconsin. It's it, it's daunting, but the, they're getting the job done and that, 
that's great to know. And I'll keep chipping in and my TAs will keep chipping in and hopefully they'll all have good, good positive outcomes at the end of the day. I think that's a really optimistic note to, uh, yeah, going on. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, great, so we'll make it through. Yeah. Go buy Foggy Geezer. Help my friend Mark. Yeah, we will do it. We will do it. That's a nice plug for your friend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Well, have a good night and uh, uh, good luck this coming semester. It's going to be here up and running before you know it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. 11 days. All right. Well, thank <laughs> you, Mark. Days. Thank you. All right. Take care. Okay. That was Michael Plant. And I thought it was great. I hope you guys all got as much out of that conversation as me and Nick did. Personally, my favorite part was just hearing about how those important formative years when he first started his career were maybe not always the most ideal, but he knew where he wanted to be at the end of the day and was willing to sacrifice a lot of hard work and time and energy to get there. And obviously it worked out for him. So that was exactly the motivation I need. going into the new school semester so yeah i think mark has a lot in common with people our age in terms of being in the early 20s and not knowing exactly what we want to do and all the books he's read you can tell with the wisdom he has and that comes from life experience as well Uh, but regardless thank you for tuning in this week and i hope you tune in next week for our episode with david johnson thank you Thanks for coming.